Hey, you guys and that. This is the Hey, you guys and that show, and I'm your host, Jay. And over here on the Microsoft Surface Pro that she got for Christmas from some really nice guy who I won't mention his name on the air. Uh, this is Angel, and our guest today is a good friend of mine, Joe Brosif Byers, uh, who also studies with me. In fact, you're wrapping up here pretty soon, aren't you? Hopefully. Well, when's your graduation date? It should be this upcoming May. So, May of 2020. May of 2020. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm not ready for the big papers and comps, but here we go. It's all right, man. So, what else is going on? So, you're you're a man of many trades. Like, you, you're... you're an author, you're working on a book, uh, You D, are you a dungeon master for D&D? I am a dungeon master. That's have, pretty rad. I have two campaigns, and I play in a third one, but I haven't That's played. very cool. Yeah. So. And you also, do you also play music? I do play music. All right. And what kind of music do you like to play? Um, so, it kind of depends. Um, if I'm in a, in like a actual band, I play saxophone and drums. Um, if I'm just by myself, I play acoustic guitar. And then for um, my podcast and stuff like that, I'll throw in loops and stuff and then like sing over them. So I'm a multifaceted instrumentalist. I think that's how they call it. I try to be Beck. That's my goal. Okay, well, that's a really good description. I like that description. Now, the question here's the thing. You know, we. I, I don't know how long ago it was. I think it was over the summertime that you said, hey, I'd like to start a correspondence actually writing to people. Yes. And I was like, okay, yeah, I would like to do that too because I enjoy writing. I try I would I used to try to write every single day as this, you know, past year has come by, it's been harder and harder because of the amount of work like you're so fucking exhausted when you work a full-time job, just mm-hmm. like you do, mm-hmm. and you go to school, like it's it's tough. It's tough to find, you know, the extra time like I just rather sit on the couch and do fuck all nothing you know what i mean but you're like hey let's do a correspondence by the way did you get both of my correspondence both the letter and the fucking mary lebowski christmas card i got mary lebowski christmas and then was the the correspondence the one that was talking about the podcast that's the one yes i did okay excellent so we dropped off a christmas card in the mail so it should be in en route to you okay wonderful these guys okay and all that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I really... Writing, I guess, for me, is like this weird release. Because when I was growing up, um, it was in the middle of nowhere. Like, the literal middle of nowhere in central Ohio. So, like, you would essentially... And I was an only child, too. So, there was literally nobody around. So, my dad would slip me, like, you know... It was like a big day when I first read Harry Potter, but... Um, when I was a kid at my school library, I would walk in and I would grab four, five, six books. And, you know, people are like, what are you doing? You never know. And I'm like, I literally have nothing to do. My parents didn't (laughs) believe in video games. Uh, I, there was literally no kids around for like three or four miles. So I'm like, I got nothing else better to do. So I might as well just read a book. So I started off with a series of unfortunate events and then just kind of took off from there. I've always kind of written things here and there. But then, um, <clears throat> based on some of my uh, own personal like work experiences, I was like, I think it'd be really cool to kind of make a book about like a security guard, and it just kind of like took off from there. So I, I combined kind of like some fantastical stuff like Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, and I combined like a little bit of kind of like a little noir and things like that. And I just kind of built it together. And, um, so yeah, that's 
that's my writing endeavor. And then I also write um, for a couple different podcasts that I make. And uh, I write for, obviously, since I'm a dungeon master, I write. So writing's kind of a big deal. Um, I think it's really cool how just a few strands of words, whether it's spoken or written or sung or whatever, it can just, like, transform. So I always, when I write, too, I think, I'm like, okay. I think about that kid who's in that house. I was like, okay what would I say to that kid who literally has no one around? Like their world is what world you're building. So that's why I appreciate authors like Tolkien and King and, uh, Rowling, even though she kind of stole Lord of the Rings a little bit, but <laughs> now that I got that off my chest. Um, but yeah, it, it really just depends on, you know, I'm trying to build a world for somebody who may not have a world. And that's what I always keep in the forefront of my mind. So did you watch the film that was based on Tolkien's life? I've not yet. I haven't either, and very few people know that. I mean, there are casual fans, let's say, that watch the films. Like I read the books when I was in sixth grade, mm-hmm. and there was only a cartoon, and a really old cartoon. I forget it was from the seventies or eighties. I can't remember mm-hmm. where it was. The Hobbit. That was the cartoon that existed. Yeah. And I wasn't a big fan of that cartoon, but the books that I read, The Hobbit, and then I read, you know, the three massive ones, the the epochs, if you will. Um, I enjoyed those immensely, and when they put them, when Peter Jackson put them in the film, I thought he did a phenomenal job because that's really hard to capture mm-hmm. because the the amount of information and the richness that are in those words that he put together for us mm-hmm. is tremendous. I don't think mm-hmm. it can ever match like you know the film that plays in your mind mm-hmm. and then transferring it to the big screen. I think it's really hard to do, mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't know that he he crafted a lot of his work based on his experiences in the First World War. Mm-hmm. And it always comes back to World War One for me. At least that was my uh, bailiwick, if you would like to call it, when I was getting my undergraduate. That's a, that was a large focus of my study was the First World War, mm-hmm. and um, you know all of the culture that came out of that. And a lot of times, I think if I if I were to reread it again, I feel like, yeah, he talks about this brotherly, you know, this brotherliness of you know the the people that are fighting against Mordor, mm-hmm. you know, this coming together for this great evil. But in the end. Is it really where the, where the Germans were, quote, the Huns, the bad guys that he was portraying as orcs? Mm. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it was. I think that he, I think he probably went a different direction. But as far as the visualization of Mordor, mm-hmm. he got from, I, I think it was from, um, wasn't it the, the, uh, the steel factories in Birmingham? that he talked about, he said that because they were spitting fire into the sky and smoke and it was hard to breathe because you're talking about post-industrial revolution, Birmingham, where they were, they were making steel. Yeah. It was a steel city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that a lot of people that grew up either in Cleveland or in Pittsburgh or in Youngstown might have had a similar experience with the air quality and the, the landscape being completely changed by this industrialization. Yeah. So it was interesting to see his uh, point of view, but you would think that somebody would come out of that with more of an anti-war point of view, mm-hmm. especially that particular, where there isn't any real bad guy. Like you're not, quote, punching a Nazi in the face in the beaches of Normandy. Yeah. You know what I mean? There really isn't. There's kind of a bad guy, but there isn't. And there's kind of, and the, everybody uses poison gas. Everybody misbehaves, you know. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there were a lot of moments where, you know, just like yesterday was Christmas, you had a Christmas truce mm-hmm. where both sides got out of their trenches and played soccer and, you know, traded chocolate and cigarettes when they mm-hmm. realized that they were both human beings mm-hmm. with some guy they didn't know telling them to kill somebody else they didn't know. You know what I mean? So I, 
I wonder how that comes how it comes across you. And I, if you haven't seen the film, maybe we should see it sometime together. We should put. I really want to see that because it's supposed to take us through that journey. He was a cavalry man, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. Yeah, I think, um, especially the shift between obviously like World War One and World War Two. I think you know you're you're starting to see that industrialization, and there. I think to put it kind of in a weird way, it's I think the world was still very personable. You know, with the modernization, I think maybe came like callousness. And <clears throat> I'm sure there I'm sure there are multitudes of stories in World War Two where there was this kind of uh, this kind of thing too. But I think with the modernizing of the world and, you know, just the nature of what was going on, um, I think it I don't want to say spilled over. I think it evolved. I think maybe that callousness kind of evolved into the second one. Um, and also the sudden nature of it all too. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these kids, they were kids, you know, so very much so being thrown into that, um, that actually, that was kind of fascinated me about the movie Dunkirk because I never realized, I think it was just the visuals of how young they were, but I also never realized too, like, how many civilians actually went to Dunkirk to like aid and help and stuff. Cause I remember in the movie, have you seen it? Oh yeah. I yeah. own it on 4k. It's amazing. <laughs> that part with the the little boy who, who died on the boat, like hangover. Yeah. Like that just, that kind of struck me too. I was like, I never realized, I've never realized that aspect of it on the civilian side. I mean, obviously like with the battle of Britain and stuff too, like there were obviously civilian casualties and you know, that and the other, but I think, I think, Part of the reason why World War One had, I think, kind of, I don't want to see this kind of fantasy element to it, is that, you know, people were dreaming about it. You know, they were saying, like, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. Correct. Um, actually, Seth gave me a really good book. Um, it was Ernest Younger. The Storm of Steel? Yeah. Yeah, I have that on audiobook. It's amazing. Yeah, that book is... Seth and his letter... Seth wrote me a letter before he had to go but essentially it was like read it and then it talks about all the grit and stuff and like the boredom and I think that's true so I think it was kind of this this like mixture and this kind of like pressure cooker where you had all these like idealistic young individuals and then you put them in this situation where there's this extreme boredom and you have to entertain yourself somehow so I think that might have added an element to Tolkien too because I know and you'll laugh when, and I know you and Olivia both laugh at this when I do this, but um, when we're, you know, when we're working and I will sit there and I will just like start writing, like I will, something will just pop up and like, I can't not write it down because typically they're interesting ideas. So I'm like, crap. And then I'll sit there and I'll like type really quickly and then like flip back to the page and I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to focus. You don't understand Angel. He's, he's a fucking pro at that because we sit right <laughs> next to each other and it'll be in the middle of a goddamn presentation. And I, tr- and I have my computer up because that way I could use Messenger to talk to the other kids about how much we don't like some of the other kids. We have, like, an Iranian government apologist in our class. She's a real bitter bitch. I don't like her. Uh, but Joseph over here, Brosoph, like you'll see it. Like, he'll have his notepad. Now, now, when the notepad is out, that's school note time. That's I'm taking notes for the class. But then there's the MacBook in front of him, and then all of a sudden, word will pop up, and then clatter, clatter, clatter. He starts working on the keys. And I'm like, oh, that's book time. 
That's definitely, and he's, he's quick about it. Like, he's a ninja. He's in and out. You know, how many pages are you at now, man? Uh, I think I'm pushing 115. I've, with break and stuff, there have just been so many, like, holiday functions, and I'm like, crap, I have not had time to write. And then I'll pull, I like, I'll start to write a little bit. Like, today I wrote a little bit, and then I'll, like, put it away. And then it, it's kind of interesting, too, because I, it's almost like I'm experiencing my characters because, you know, they're college students, so they're, like, you know, doing stuff, and then they have to go for a little bit, and then they come back. And I'm up to, I think, double-spaced, it's 118 pages. 100, that's, 110, that's pretty good. 118, somewhere Because you gave me the first two chapters. Yeah. And that seems like a lifetime ago already. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, let me ask you this. When you're writing your characters, is it hard for you to do character development? Because even when I would write... Like, I took an experiencing theater class. Oh, Jesus. Was it... 20 fucking years ago now. I'm the oldest person in the room, by the way. Thank you very little. I wasn't around 20 years ago, so I don't remember okay. you, take, you taking that class. Yeah, well, I did take this class, and we had to write a play. Mm-hmm. And I had I had an okay time writing the characters, because it, it, the play only had to be 20 pages. So with dialogue and the way you construct dialogue, that eats mm-hmm. up a lot of pages. Yeah. And then you're writing in change scene to X, Y, or Z. Like you're moving from indoors to outdoors, let's say. Mm-hmm. So that eats up a big chunk. You know, I, I was okay with that. But for what you're doing, mm-hmm. you're writing in-depth characters. Like mm-hmm. what are your inspirations for writing these characters? Well, see, here's what's funny. Um, they come from several different places. So to answer the first part, I think... There's a lot to be said for the reader. And I will say this because when I read Harry Potter, the thing that didn't strike me was her details and like, for example, Hogwarts is this big fantastical castle where there are, you know, ghosts teeming out of the walls and there's the cliffside, like the moors of somewhere in England and, you know, they're hidden away and there are owls flying in and out. That, that wasn't what struck me. What struck me was the immediate scene with the boat and they're heading towards it. They're bobbing along. And then what caught me too, was that how much I was making up for the characters. So for example, as the reader, I was putting my own thoughts into it because I'm sure, you know, like whenever you see, for example, you're a King fan and you have all these King, like, like for example, reading, um, um, the shining, there's so much in the shining that is not spoken. It's like, for example, Danny's like, Danny's fear is apparent, but it's also like the impending doom that keeps coming. It's like, I don't know what's going on, but there's this thing coming and it's confusing and this and that. It's it's playing in on that and that's part of the reader's responsibility. I forget who said it, but there's like a relationship between the author and the reader and it's the trust. There's like a trust there. So when I'm writing the characters, what I'm doing is I'm taking real people that I know. I'm, I don't know if you've gotten that far yet, but I, I based a couple characters on like people in our, our group. Yes. So yeah, I, I, um, I take their, I take their actions. Like I, I study, it's kind of like this weird, like case study where like, I'll watch them. Like, for example, I know Lauren, like will do this thing where she'll sit there and she'll just be like, yeah, yeah. I think that too. And then she'll kind of like do this thing where she'll stare off and then she'll kind of duck back and then she'll go, so anyway, and like cut, <laughs> she'll like tilt her head in and like kind of cut into it. And I, I put that in the book where her specific character, I like, I put that tick in there or like I threw in the little subtlety of the, 
the brand name bag. Or like, for example, with Olivia, I would kind of throw in this thing where she'd be like, sup? And like, that's it. Like, there's no further, it's like waiting in this response. Um, I know my character, I threw in like, I based the character off myself. So I threw in a couple little ticks there. Um, I actually will ping pong and ask around to people who, like, for example, I threw in an LGBTQ character. I'm not LGBTQ. So like, I'm thinking, okay, I want a character that can relate to a group of people who, mm-hmm. you know, feel all these range of emotions and have all these different things going on. So I will reach out to them and be like, hey, when you think of a character, what is something that you want to see? And they're like, I want to see, like, like fluidity. Like, I want to see them just, like, kind of in their own comfort zone. I want to see them, like, obviously, like, any heroic trope, like, rise above and, like, do this or that. And then most of – a couple of things were, like, I just want them to be, like, normalized. Like, it's not, like – this grand pedestal display of here's this character, they get a gold star. It was like, no, this character is just like a normal functioning part of the world. So it's a lot of combination of case study and then like relying on the reader to use their imagination to kind of like fill in some missing blanks. For example, there are story, like in the story, I have to pair it to where character A is doing this plotline development character B doesn't know this in the same group of people, like the same group of friends. So a week will pass with this character and this character will have a huge investment in a huge step. Then character B will see this, recognize it, and then they'll go and do their thing. And then they develop a new like development for the story. And then I'll have these interludes where like they all come together and they're like, bro, I figured this out. What's going on. And then it's not a huge spoiler, but it kind of is. Um, there's a character who may not be who they seem. So then this character is now going to this other group and is like, Hey, I have some dirt and they slide it over. So like, there's this whole different dynamic where, you know, it's kind of crazy and kind of confusing. And, but I want at the same time to, for the reader to trust me and have like that relationship where it's like, okay, this may not make sense right now. Their development is slow and gradual, but I want them to I know there's something coming like I I pace it to where each chapter has something because I think the hardest thing to do on a reader and I I love Tolkien but I'm gonna rag on him here there are like these huge dead times where it's like and they traverse and then it's like three or four pages where it's like and they traverse thousands of miles like across the land and he's like picking apart every rock and every detail it's like no 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 I want what I want to invest the reader in is, is I want them to say okay the author kind of gave me some creativity here where I can, and I think this is part of the reason why I love D&D so much, is that the author gave me, or the DM gave me this kind of creativity here where they're setting up kind of the baseline. Um, you know, I can't describe every single shop, every single detail, every single creature that walks in and out, but I can give them enough to where they're like, okay, here's a map, here's a setting, and then... I can incorporate like, okay, maybe the dining hall for me is like this huge building with several floors and all this other stuff. But the dining hall for you would be like kind of a regular small, like military dining facility where it's very like prim proper cut. More of an intimate setting where you're a little bit more elbows to elbows. Yeah. So it really just kind of depends on them. And I think that's because I like books like that where it's kind of, it's descriptive, but then you kind of have to invest in it too. And I think that's where you find that the strongest fans are 
because it might not be the amount of content, but it's more so like, does this allow me to contribute to it? Um, that's what I found too with my D and D groups and my D and D games is that they're not going to be invested when they're sitting there and they're like, okay, so I have the town, and now I don't know what to do. It's like there's it's almost a tasking for them to be like, oh well, maybe I will make this character this way or I'll make this character this way. So it's it's kind of a two-way street. So that's kind of how I develop characters. It's funny that you brought that up about the uh, LGBTQ character that you have uh, in your work. Um, I read a, a series of novels, um, fantasy novels, that uh, I forget the guy's name, but it's about this dude named Fred the Vampire Accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he, he, he gets bitten and he becomes a vampire and... In the vampire world, they still have to work with... They have to pay the fucking IRS. So even in death, you can't escape the goddamn government. <laughs> well, death and then immortal life because you are dead. Well, one of the titles of the book is Undeath and Taxes. So he is like a parahuman um, uh, CPA, like a certified pu- a parahuman public accountant. So he helps these people do their taxes, and there's some... <laughs> There's some ancient, uh, when the Constitution was ratified, parahumans obviously were around back then. And it's just very interesting. They have this treaty that they've worked out between the living and the not-so-living or kind of living or the undead, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. And one of the main characters, he's a, I, I don't know if he's a minotaur. He, com- he becomes a minotaur. Gay as the day is long. I mean, straight homosexual. But he's hard as a coffin nail like he's tough and he watches this guy's back mm-hmm. his name is Bubba in the story and he, the, the the um the reader of the uh, of the audiobook uses a southern accent for this guy so you get the impression this is like a cowboy at a rodeo in some place in Texas he just happens to like guys i always found that funny to see how people tackle that because they are just regular people mm-hmm. like there's I don't want to say there's not anything special about them, but they're special in the fact they're just human beings who happen to like X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How to tackle that. Because like like Joe's saying, you don't necessarily give them a gold star just for being in that category. Right, but I think a lot of people do give them a gold star for being in that category because it's not the norm for the population like most of the population maybe is straight i don't know what the numbers are i'm not too versed in that but it's a smaller percent of the population that may be lgbtq um so i think that in that aspect it's hard for a straight person to write a story about a gay person and make it seem like it's normal yeah you know a fair point. you have to you have to jazz it up a bit because then if you don't, then you might be considered, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? You mm-hmm. might be considered like you're being downplaying the situation for them. That's an interesting point. But, like, the gay people that we know, like the gay couple that we pal around with once in a while, they're regular guys. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion that most people that are in that category, in the LGBTQ category, I think the vast majority of them want to be just it's like saying that their eyes are brown that's just something that that that's part of them that's not what makes them who they are is their you know sexual tendencies or what they're mm-hmm. attracted to you know like in this story no drew hayes that's the name of the author that's the name of the author of 
Fred the Vampire. That one of the books is called The Fangs of Freelance, along with Undead, Undead and Taxes. And you know you have Bubba who's running around who's tough, not what you know I guess the media in earlier times would have portrayed. Mm-hmm. A homosexual character, mm-hmm. you know, they tend to be more flamboyant or what have you. They don't tend to be what they probably are, what they really are, and what we know them to be is just regular human beings. Mm-hmm. Just a, so it's interesting to hear you write that, the way you write that, and the mm-hmm. way you approach it, because you, they are part of the population. They're part mm-hmm. of the human family, and they are inevitably going to be in any story, real or imagined. You know what I mean? Now, here's yeah. a question for you, as far as King is concerned. Yeah. I have two out of three. I've read one Stephen King book and one Stephen King book only, and that's mm-hmm. The Eye of the Dragoon or Dragon. I can't remember if there's two O's or one O. You got that Microsoft Surface Pro. Why don't we look that up? I don't remember, but it was 1,200 pages or something. We read it in seventh grade, mm. and it was, it was tremendous. It was a phenomenal book. It was like, like in this castle and had all these secret passages. It was, it was really enthralling, mm-hmm. and especially for someone like me who's a 12-year-old you know, metalhead at the time who had the attention span of a wasp, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, for something to grab a hold of you like that. And mm-hmm. I've always been a fan of reading. You can obviously, this is just a fraction of it. And this yeah. is divided between uh, the missus and I. I just saw all the Stephen King books. Yeah, that that's that that would be uh, that would be Angel's uh, section of the of the <laughs> library. All the other shit, the Vonnegut and below, that's uh, that's down here. That's me. But uh, how many pages? Is it one o? Yeah, it's one o. It's the the eyes of the dragon. So it's the eyes. I plural pluralized the wrong word. Yeah. Okay, so rank them. I want I want your. This is Olympic oh, podium. Start with your bronze. Then we're gonna get to the silver and then the gold. Oh man! You first, and then and then I'll let her and then I'll let her have her uh, her hack at it. But I, you're the guest here, so let's let's hear it. I want to hear what you think. Okay, so bronze for me is the gunslinger because I was um, I was a, I was away and um, I had this book and it was just boredom, ridiculous boredom. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I'll start it. And so I started it. And I got about 50 pages in, and there's the big event that happened. And I was just like, what? And that was the quickest, like, 200, 300 pages I've ever read. I'm just, like, flipping pages. Because the book's, like, really... The one that the copy I had is, like, really long and, like, kind of elongated. So I was just, like, sitting there, and I'm, like, flipping these pages quickly. And then I finished it, and I'm like, crap, now I have to read the rest. <laughs> so I had to know what happens. Um, Let's see. So I think that's my bronze... Is that the Dark Tower? Is that the one the Dark yeah. Tower is based on? Okay. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to think of the others. Uh, uh, I think I really, really like Desperation. Desperation is probably my number two. Because Desperation was another one where I was reading it, and then it had like that one of those like gotcha moments. And they're like, oh, this is interesting. And then I just kept writing, reading it. And then I think number one for me, just because it's just classic... Um, both classic king and then the impact that it's had and i think i gotta say the shining because again that was like the quickest 400 pages ever like i read about 200 pages and then it like snagged me again and then i'm like no way and then i was away again and i was like reading and i read like 400 pages in just this short amount of time and i'm just like i need more of this and it's a shame because i haven't read dr sleep yet but if i've read dr sleep i will probably put dr sleep in my number two so Okay. I also have not read Doctor Sleep yet. I have it. Mm-hmm. I just haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of different stories. I don't know if you've read 
um, these ones, but one is called Leslie's Story. I've heard of that. And it's a really good book. Um, it's a really good story. Mm. Um, and it's about this woman, her husband dies, and he knows how to travel through space and time with his mind. And oh. he goes to this place that has this lake, mm. and he can heal things and people with the water that's in this lake. Mm-hmm. And the place is called, he called it Booyah Moon, I believe. Hmm. That's the name of the place that he could travel to. It's mm-hmm. different from Earth. Hmm. And so that one's pretty good. That sounds good. And then Insomnia. I have that, but I haven't read it yet. Oh my god, that book is so awesome. <sighs> Dang it. I'll have to put that on the, it, on the uh, After I read that book, I uh, woke up and I had lost one of my earrings and I couldn't find it. And all I could think about was the creature in the book. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what if it's real and it stole my earring? You know, not that it was real, but you know, yeah. just what, it instantly made me think of that character. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool. a good book. So we got to know number one. Uh, number one... I would probably have to say The Cell by Stephen King. I'll have to read that one. Really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I I, I only have one, so <laughs> that's uh, that's it for me. Um, I don't know, man. Like, everybody's really... I don't know if it's just... It's kind of like music in a way. Like, an author will either catch you or they won't. Yeah. My big... My, like, I have two... That I mean, one one of both of them write fiction, and one of them writes exclusively fiction. Of course, one of the, that's Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. and the book that kind of changed my life was The Breakfast of Champions. Mm-hmm. And if you have a chance to listen to it, John Malkovich narrates the story, oh, and no. uh, it, it's fuck it. Nobody <laughs> else could do it better than him. He's the only one. And I'm a huge fan, and I would love to narrate that. No, no, no. John Malkovich was the right one for that job. Uh, if, you, if you have a chance, please listen to it. Like, he does such a great fucking job. He man. really does. It's good. Yeah, it's we, funny. Yeah, we listened to it together, and even she was like, this is really funny. Because <laughs> Vonnegut by himself is funny when you hear it in your book. But from now on, every time I read Vonnegut, I'm hearing fucking John Malkovich. <laughs> and it just makes it even better. Um, the other one, of course, was Albert Camus. Mm. The Absurdist Writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, The Stranger was the book that uh, that caught me uh, when uh, when I was younger, which introduced me to absurdism, because I had heard of nihilism and shit. You know, if you watch the fucking Big Lebowski, you're going to hear nihilism, you don't even know what it means. Yeah. You know, and then you do a dive, but then you don't know there's this deviation from that, mm. you know. And The Stranger was one, it was about this guy who lived in... Uh, in uh, in French Algeria, it was prior to the French getting uh, ousted from there, mm. which is where Camus from, a French Algerian, and he ends up uh, dating this lady, and you know, just the, the I don't want to ruin. If you ever have a chance to read it, I, all all I could say is at the end he just kind of it's like none of this really matters. There's a murder that takes place, and he's sitting there in police custody, and he's just like you know, none of this is really fucking important. None of this really matters. Mm. And then when I read the Rebel. When he, and I'm paraphrasing when he talked about and he told the, the audience that your goal is essentially to become so completely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And of course, that's always going to, that, that, and that will be part of my fi- the fiber of my DNA until they put me into the incinerator. <laughs> like that really speaks to me on such a high level. Mm-hmm. 
like on a deep level. If you if you believe in the soul, call it the soul level because mm. yeah, your very existence is an act of rebellion against the absurdity of life if you subscribe to that philosophy, which I do. Mm-hmm. And that was a massive impact on me. Uh, of course, Tolkien, like I said, when I, I read those when I was a kid, and those are phenomenal stories. But yeah, why do you think he threw so much fucking detail into the trek? Like, the, the description, like, I understand, like, I you, thank you very much. I have a great fucking idea of what everything looks like now. It's yeah. tremendous. Like, you essentially gave me a photograph, mm-hmm. but it does eat up a lot of pages. Mm-hmm. A lot of pages, and you're way, like, that, I don't want to call it, maybe, dead time is, I think, is accurate. Mm-hmm. But that's the point where maybe a casual will begin to lose their interest. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people want to get to the action. They want to get to the sword play. They want to get to the magic. They want to get to all of the fun things. You know what I mean? I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But even though someone like me can't appreciate it, like you said, you can critique it a little bit. I'm like, ah, you know what? You fucking drag that out a little bit too long. Yeah. Why do you think he did that? I think, well, I think part of it is is that, you know, it, it goes back to the time period in which it was written. And then in addition to that, we have to think and realize that, you know, the only thing they really had was books and radio. Right. That's a really good point. So the thing is, is that, you know, when you're putting in all this detail, it's like Narnia, like Narnia is a really short series, but that CS Lewis. Yeah. Okay. But there is a lot of detail. And of course there's the relationship between the two, as far as like, they're really good friends and there's, there are jokes and stories where it's like, they kind of play off of one another. But the thing about it is, is that when you, when you take a closer look at it and you think about it, I think part of it is is that they didn't have any like extraneous, you know, entertainment. So like part of the detail was and it again, I think it's part of that relationship between the reader is that, you know, you're you're if you're like, okay, if you trust me with your time, I will give you a good story. And I think that detail, especially in like a high fantasy setting like that, um, it's one of those things where there has to be kind of a lot of detail. Um you know, there's, you can, I'm trying to think of somebody else that I could pull that does that. Um, Neil Gaiman and American Gods, that's a really huge, huge book. It's like anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 pages. I've read it three times. That book just still captures my interest. Every time. It's just fascinating. And I, I think there's something to be said too where I don't think, I think there are a couple times in that book where there's a tiny bit of dead time, but there wasn't anything that, that I was like, this is stupid. Why is this happening? Like, I agree with you. Like, even even some people would argue that Ifrit wasn't even that important, but I'm like, the the Ifrit and the taxi driver thing. That's actually pretty important. It shows like, oh yeah. It's like I think it just shows like the nature of, like, and I think this is I think part of what fantasy is too is that what I think what captures it is like it's just slightly off to where it hooks people, but then that book in particular. It's, it's just trying to show just how entwined, like, not only is, like, our culture and, like, our origins are into who we are, but, like, how easily it could be in plain sight. And I think that's why that book captures me, too, is that it's it's all assuming that everyone else except Shadow and, like, the couple other gods that are, like, in existing, the old and the new, know about it. Because if you think about it, who else in that book other than Shadow knows that this is going on? No one else. So, no else. so that's, I think that's a fascinating point. And I think, you know, fantasy has the stigma of it has to be grandiose too. Like, I think that's where a lot of modern writers kind of, <clears throat> sorry, kind of fall off the bat. 
you know, I, I obviously accept Gaiman. Another one that I think is really good is Patrick Rothfuss. Like, I haven't finished um, The Name of the Wind, but he has his own series where he's got a lot of detail in it. I mean, it's a several hundred page book, and it's kind of like these weird combinations because you have to create the world. You have to keep the world interesting enough for that for people to stay in the world, and then there has to be kind of like some kind of resolution eventually. Um, with Gaiman, though, what I think, why the reason why that book is so big is because it's it's self-contained. Like, that's why that book, I think, is so huge. And how you were talking about um, books that, like, captured you, like, I remember um, I was I was working, and I was, like, reading that book, and there, I just had this memory where um, I was reading the part where Shadow is in, was it Minnesota? It's either Minnesota or, or Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And he's like solo and it's like snowing and he has like that little cabin. Well, the building I was in was just like that. And then they had, um, there was snow falling and I was the only one around, um, for, it was, it was their uh, Christmas break. And that was the whole, the whole scene. It was like this really thick, heavy snow. It's like falling down. There was this great moment of visualization between the two. And I, I think for Tolkien though, it's, it's part of that, you know, I'm building a self-contained thing. I want to keep it to where, you know, someone who has the time because they had, I don't want to say they had a lot less distractions in some ways, but they kind of did, um, to put their time into it. And the only, that's really the only entertainment they had. You kind of have to be a little bit detailed. You have to give them something to where they're like, okay, I can picture this and imagine it. Because like now, you know, if we, for example, I could get on Google and look up, high fantasy forest and it'll pull up like these these tall or just coniferous deciduous 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 is what we have here in ohio okay so yeah but there's like tall coniferous trees and like there are like glowing embers and there might even be like the occasional like sprite flying in the background like we have access to that they didn't so he had to be really detailed um and i think too you know Maybe that's an homage to the trenches in some ways. Maybe it's like just the barren landscape and then tra- traversing it and it feeling endless and all that. Um, it could be part of character development explaining the plight of, you know, the three. Um, Legolas, Gimli, and uh, Aragorn as they're trying to transverse. Same with Frodo and Sam. I mean, it, there's a lot of different things that could it could be, but I think fantasy kind of has that stigma of just being, like, excessive, but... You know, same thing with sci-fi. I mean, sci-fi is pretty ex- excessive too when you think about it. You know, it's funny you mention that because I'll, you know, you'll hear people make fun of those who are into high fantasy, or the same fucking people that that watch Star Wars movies. Yeah, the exact same people. Yeah, it's the same. It's a fucking cowboy movie in space, bro. And I'm, I'll, I'll fall out of, I'll die and fall in the out of the chair watching that shit. Like I love mm-hmm. Star Wars. Like the first, the first movie I remember seeing was in 1984. I was four years old, and it was, and I found out because I thought I was imagining it, mm-hmm. like, you know, the false memory thing. Yeah. Well, I wasn't because it was re-released. Return of the Jedi was re-released in 1984, mm-hmm. and it, my dad took me to the movies to see it. And I'll never forget Darth Vader getting out of his shuttle in the in the Death Star, 
that was being constructed. I've been I've been a junk like it's my heroin. Like yeah. anything that's Star Wars, if you sign me up, I, I'm I'm gonna be there. Mm. It's like Chinese food. I'm always gonna eat it, <laughs> even if it's bad. Yeah, I'm gonna eat it. You know what I mean? Not to call out any of the recent films or anything like that, but I'm just saying, even oh. if the product isn't that great, I'm still gonna consume it. Yeah. But what does it say about? about writers and, and, and uh, novels. For example, like you talked about Game and American Gods and you're talking about the snow. Like when they're in Chicago mm-hmm. and Wednesday is telling yes. them, think about like like thick flakes and think snow. And all of a sudden it starts snowing because they're going to do a heist mm-hmm. on that ATM. Yep. And, it's, and it starts to work. And then the part that I've used this phrase and I highly recommend everybody else does. When Shadow is in Lake Town which is, a, it's a, fi- a fictional town. There's a bunch of Easter eggs. He, like, there's people on Reddit that have tried to trace where Gaiman, he says it's it, that these places do exist, but you have to be really, you have to pay attention. I, I, I'm not fucking driving to Wisconsin, but I can relate to the cold. If you remember, uh, Shadow's walking out of his apartment, and he doesn't have a car, and he's dressed, you know, like you would in winter and maybe southern Ohio or Kentucky and he's walking down the main drag and he's like you, the, Gaiman starts to write about how how cold Shadow is and he uses the phrase science fiction cold and the cop pulls up to talk to him and he thinks he's saying oh no I'm doing okay officer and all that comes out of his mouth is Aah! it's all gibberish because he's getting fucking hypothetical like he's freezing to death Yeah, and that I thought that that was in, I don't know maybe it's because we live in the north that when you say science fiction cold, it's like, fuck yeah. We've had negative 45 wind chill down. That's yeah. science fiction cold. Yeah. You might as well be on goddamn Mars. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What is it about right? Because writers have such strong competition. Mm-hmm. The greatest competition you could ever think of, which is celluloid. And, of course, when it gets transferred to ultra 4K UHD television, <laughs> which I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> but how do you compete against that? Because... That is a tough medium to fight mm-hmm. because it's the it's it's the fast food drive through consumer culture, right? I gotta be I gotta be able to eat it right now. Mm-hmm. A novel takes time. Mm-hmm. You have to invest in it. Like when you're talking about American Gods and how it hooked you, and you were sitting there as the snow was falling. As soon as Odin was in the story, you had me. Mm-hmm. Anything that has to deal with the Norse gods, you yeah, I'm, I'm in. Wait till my book comes out because <laughs> I can't no. wait. I can't uh, wait for this. I'm gonna get an autographed copy. Book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I have to finish it first. Um, I think the challenge is is that, I mean, you have to teach. You have to teach them young. I think because for me, it wasn't. It wasn't because I had. I, I was in the middle of nowhere, but I had TV still. Um, the the thing that actually got me into reading wasn't um, just like. Oh, it's a book. You know, it was what got me into it was my teachers who were like, hey, you should try. It was just like a passion for it. It's like, I love to read, so I want to teach it to you. And it's being uh, malleable enough to say, okay, I'll try this. Well, um, call it different conditions or whatever. But where I was, I was like, oh, yeah, I could. This would totally be great. And I started with something that interested me or looked. And I, I think that was the other part of it, too, was it looked interesting. So like American gods, for example, like the copy that I had, it has the car and shadow and Wednesday. And then it has like that fifties noir, like or the fifties homage, um, sign with the big a and like 
the script, like kind of how the TV show was. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. <clears throat> so that's what kind of hooked me was like the cover, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I think it's just like a multiple factors. Um, but I think to compete against the medium of TV is it's kind of interesting because like it's it's interesting too to see you know we say things like competing against the medium of TV yet we're sitting here recording a podcast and this podcast can be anywhere from a half hour to you know several hours um it could be the equivalent of a, of a short of a short you know fiction novel exactly yeah um audiobooks are a big thing too where you know people are on the go and they can listen to it um to actually i think it's something visceral though about holding the book for me that like gets me hooked so i think the thing that will compete i think in my personal opinion people will love to read books i think because it it's forcing you to be in a way to be quiet at least for me it's like um for example i'm reading this one and i know you'll be excited to talk about this it's called the dude and the zen master with jeff bridges and bernie glassman and like i'm reading through this and i'll actually read an excerpt because this is it's kind of ties into it it's thinking about this too it's like these all these all spawned from uh from jeff bridges and his zen buddhist master and they were exchanging conversation and then they decided to make these manuscripts and they turned it into a book and the thing that i realized was was that to get into something like this it has to have a really good hook at the beginning kind of like any good tv show and then you just you start to like absorb it. I think with TV, it's so so easy to just kind of like, oh, watch it, be like, okay, you know, that was pretty cool, and then kind of like duck out of it. Where it's like, I think with reading, especially if it's something kind of like this, where it's kind of philosophical, um, you know, it it makes you stop and think. Like this, the thing that got me is uh, Jeff Bridges is talking about um, when he was in the military because I didn't realize he was in the Coast Guard Reserve. I had no idea. And so he says this part that always got me, um, or that got me when I was reading it yesterday. It says, uh, he's talking about going to church, and you can either go to church, or he was saying basically his drill instructors were like, you can either go to church, or you can stay here and clean stuff. And they didn't want to clean, so they all went to church. And this guy said, um, or actually, sorry, uh, Jeff Bridges says, the priest was a guy named Don Harris, and this is what he told us. When you're here in this church, you're not in the military, you're in the house of God. And it says, try to imagine it, here we are, getting our butts kicked in boot camp, slammed and broken down, and he tells us that we're in the house of God, where our identity and individuality are celebrated rather than crushed. That little reminder meant so much to me. It helped me make an adjustment and click into a whole different consciousness from where I was at the time. Don turned me on to Christianity, though probably not your traditional Christianity. He suggested I read books like... I don't even want to pronounce that. The Last Temptation of Christ and the Saviors of God. He invited me to sing and play my guitar during services. Not the guy to always follow the rules. He gave me some civilian clothes one day when our company was on leave, which you weren't supposed to do. Said he wanted to turn me onto something and took me to see, took me to the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco to see, get this, Janis Joplin and the Jefferson Airplane. This was long before they made it. There's something about when you write and you're putting the human investment into wordcraft and things like that that I think will captivate people beyond TV because it's causing them to sit down or if they're driving and listening to it on an audiobook, actually like pay attention to like this actual human experience or this fictitious experience that somebody actually took the time like we're sitting here right now and actually like 
thought and put pen to paper to words. And now with TV, like somebody's doing that too, but there's something like I want to say more palatable in it so you can kind of, you know, pause it and come back to it later where it's, it's almost like with this, it's like, and with American Gods, once there's that, that hook, you have to keep going. Um, and for me, it's kind of like this weird addiction where like, I just love holding the visceral thing. Like I can't hold, I can hold a DVD, but I can't hold what they're saying. And I, I love going and I can't highlight a movie or a book or I can't highlight a movie or a TV show either. I have to highlight in my books. I like write little notes. Um, I use it later. And I mean, yeah, anyone can quote any Star Wars fan can quote Star Wars just like right off the bat. And it's basically someone, a purist would be like, Oh, that's not really true. Like this side or the other, but it's just something about for me anyway, it's like taking the time, putting my phone away, putting my whatever else away and like, honing in on something that spawned from the human condition of I have this thing inside me that I need to create and I'm putting it out here in a tome that it's just mass disseminated. And I don't know if that really answers the question, but it always just fascinated me that even like, even at the height of TV in like the fifties, when it was like this huge big thing, like people still took the time to read books. Like people still took the time to like, put things away and like even turn off the TV and like sit and read or write or um, do things like that. So I think part of it standing the test of time is just going to be, I don't want to say like book nerds, but um, strong systems where, for example, like libraries where they reach out and they're like, Hey, we want to promote this or like getting young, young kids into it to like keep going. I mean, it, I'm not gonna lie. It kind of sucks for the planet because you know, you're putting trees and all that stuff into it. But I think, that in turn too is part of like cherishing what it is. Um, so I don't know that maybe not answer the question. But. No, that's okay. Well, I mean, first of all, there's most of the trees that are used to, to put these books together are from renewable. You're not cutting down redwoods to make these, you know, right. I don't know if it's poplar. I don't know if, what, what the hell they're not making it out of fucking California redwoods. Yeah. You know what I mean? I understand what you're saying. Apart from a few television and, and um, cinema films, most of the shit that you see on TV is really vapid. Mm-hmm. It's really empty. There's even a shitty book is dense. Even a shitty book or not or a, a C minus book. Okay, so if you're gonna put Game and King in the A category or Camus in the A category, Vonnegut in the A category, mm-hmm. you're gonna have some some authors that are kind of you know, throwing B's, throwing C's, maybe throwing D's. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing vapid about it. It's mm-hmm. not empty. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you said, wordcraft. I think the vast majority of the... Tele- now, of course, again, I'm a Star Wars person. When Of course, the hot topic right now is The Mandalorian. I knew you were going to... I caught up, so now I, I'm versed. I came prepared. Great, because the next episode drops tomorrow. Dang it. Okay. Okay, so we'll we'll talk again about this at another time. Okay. Well, that episode, we could talk about everything that we've seen so far. And what I've explained to people is that fucking show has enough familiarity and equal amounts of mystery, so that even a casual mm-hmm. can see, oh, there's f- fucking stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. Oh, that guy looks like Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's enough, and and for me, like I'm looking at the vehicles, I'm looking at the weapons, I'm looking at all these details, right? Mm-hmm. I know the story of Mandalore. I know the story of the of the. I think it was the hyperspace war. I can't remember which war it was that uh, the uh, that the, the planet was destroyed. The Mandalorians mm. were destroyed, and I know that this 
particular character has flashbacks to droids, which obviously takes place in the first galactic civil war that results in the Empire, uh, you know, mm-hmm. becoming a reality. Yeah. That, and John Favreau, I'm no fan of that guy personally. Mm-hmm. I think he's a twat. But boy, is he in the right fucking business. Mm-hmm. He really is a gifted showrunner. Mm-hmm. Because that telenovela, if you will, mm-hmm. is something that doesn't isn't vapid. Mm-hmm. It's dense. There's a lot going on there. It's funny you mention that. There are two shows that I've, three shows actually, that I've recently watched that kind of do what you're talking about. The first is Afro Samurai. I don't know what it is about Samuel Jackson. He's he's tremendous. I love the man. But that show is it's so great. so captivating. There's like all these little details, and especially like the thing that gets me every time is the headband. Like it just seems endlessly long, but then he'll like turn and it's like just down to the back of the shoulder. Right. And he's running and it like flows to his ankles. But um, so that one's really good. There's another show that I've watched that I'm still freaking out about because it's just a aesthetically really cool. It's called Over the Garden Wall. It seems really ch- like. You start watching it, and it's super childish. It's like, okay, it's these couple kids. Elijah Wood is one of the voice actors. John Cleese is even in it as voices. Oh, wow. So you're like, this is really strange. But, like, you're watching this, and you're like, what's the deal? It's like 10, 11-minute episodes. Like, there's no way this could have any dense anything. But then, like, I was watching a video today, and there's, like, 115 things you missed in the show. And it'll point things out that you're like, there was all this foreshadowing that I had no idea was going on. I was so invested in this really weird show and it has like it's like i don't want to say i don't want to say this it's like i want to say it's like the folky adventure time is the best way i can explain it it's a limited series there's only 10 episodes but there's like a pumpkin like on stilts there are like these little pumpkin people dancing around a maypole and you're like it seems really like oddly like there's kind of like a weird kind of paganism in it and then there's a point where there's it's not really a big spoiler but there's this um, they call it the beast and it's very elusive like you're like okay there's this beast but we don't know what's going on and there's a part where and I forget who the voice actor is but it's like his voice is super de- deep and he's singing like operatic like verses and stuff with this like very uh, like mid like I don't know if you know who Leon Redbone is no okay no. Leon Redbone is this really he was in popular in like the 50s or 60s um, but he's very I don't want to say somber, but it sounds like something you would hear in like the old like 1910s to like 1930s like bands, which you've got the guitar. It's like a bluesy guitar, but then there's like a lot of horns and it's like it's like very somber. But they play that kind of music in the background of the show. I mean, and they're relatively modern kids too. Like you find out it's set in like the 70s and 80s, and like Elijah Wood's character has this whole shift and it's it's just captivating and it's it's funny how you say that because there's this really dense material in it so there's those and then um firefly is another one too that has a lot of i think dense material that joss whedon doesn't really explicitly say but there's something about it where it's there's like that noir kind of and that's where i found it interesting between the mandalorian and firefly was that i don't want to say it's like space cowboys but it really is like Space Cowboys and yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. So, you mentioned Adventure Time. Did, did you watch all of them? I've not watched all of them now. There, there. I don't want to say it was past my time, but I need to watch it because I I started watching bits and pieces of it. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool, and then um, I got swept up in undergrad, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm just gonna tuck that away for later. Well, 
I I wasn't a big believer in my uh my kid at the time he was young and my wife both told me hey you need to watch this because I thought it was ridiculous I'm like what the fuck is going on here mm-hmm. this is wild mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what there's one episode that get like I I have to like I have to check my feelings honestly mm-hmm. and that's when uh when you know who Marceline the vampire yeah, yeah. is right yeah. Well, it's when she was a little girl, and it was the start of the Great Mushroom War, which was the fucking oh. nuclear holocaust, and, and uh, the Ice King was still Simon, oh. and uh, he wasn't fully taken over yet, and he he saves her life. Like, he protects her, and, like, she's, like, in the little girl voice, she's, I love you, Simon, and, like, it's, oh, no, it's, it's fucking deep. It cuts deep. That show it hits on a lot of levels. A lot of levels, and of course, Finn's dealing with his dad issues and stuff because it's funny. Like the older you get, there's certain cartoons like fucking SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes, hits on the kid level. Yeah, and then as adult, you hear these fucking jokes, and you're like, when Patrick's like, oh, "My job doesn't offer health insurance," and it's like, that's fucking funny. Yeah, that's funny, Patrick. I get that. Yeah, but I'm telling you, that show, that show was a real. Is, is a real enjoyable way to spend your time. Mm-hmm. Like, regular show was another one that I really enjoyed. It was stupid, but it was funny. It was lots of fun. Um, if you have a chance, mm-hmm. go through and watch that episode Okay. Uh, with Marcy and Simon. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, It'll fucking hit you. It'll hit you in the chest if you're if you know if you have a pulse and you're breathing. You're not a terrible person. I think over the garden wall will hit you too because it's in that same like animation style, but it's so like I liked it because I grew up in a really like rustic area where I the only way I can explain this is like have you ever seen they're like the little I don't even know they're like little I don't you probably don't have one in here they're like little boxes it's the best way I can explain it's like they're the little boxes that have like the the like typical like farmhouses on them that are like home sweet home and they're like really rustic looking yeah no that's a good image yes yeah so it's like that but you put it you take that and put it in a tv show and with all these weird like afterlife noir mini pagan things that you're just like this is kind of like the maypole thing it was like totally threw me where they're there it's not like again not a spoiler but there are these pumpkins dancing around a maypole and they're singing the song and i'm like that seems like I I just picture like obviously other things, but I picture like mid sixteenth seventeenth century. But then here in the next scene, it's like they're talking about clarinets and bassoons, and they have like nineteen twenties and thirties like string band stuff. There's a like a frog playing a like a really old ragtimey bluesy piano, and you're just like, wait, what's going on? And the creator said too, he's like, I took all these different interests that I had and I just threw them all together and. It hits you because, and I, again, I won't spoil it, but there's a there's a scene where between a couple of the characters that hit you in the feels, you're like, wow, I never realized this 11-minute show would hit me this hard, but I feel that. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's neat. Thank you for the recommendation. I'll have to check that out. No problem. I, uh, you know, it, it's hard to find uh, shows like that that can captivate you so easily. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And here's the, here's a question for you. So we talked about, like, um, you know, the, the written word, it, it, its power mm-hmm. and whatnot. And you see everything is getting more and more digitized. Mm-hmm. Like, in a weird way, I kind of wonder, is like, if everything goes to shit, and, and the giant meteor finally makes its way here, which is an inevitability more than anything else, mm-hmm. okay? Mathematically speaking, nothing's going to be written anymore. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to have to, it's going to be year zero. Mm. You're going to have to start from scratch mm. because all of these, all of this important information has been digitized. Well, guess what? If you don't have a fucking computer, your thumb drive is useless. Mm. All that information is lost. Yeah. And, you know, there's a guy that, um, uh, that, uh, that Angel uh, likes to read. His name is Graham Hancock. And he does investigate. I mean, he's a, originally a journalist, but he does investigative books uh, about lost civilizations. Like they're, they're, they're using ground penetrating radar and they're finding all sorts of different shit in the Amazon mm-hmm. where they're finding, you know, buildings and they're finding like are they temples as well. Stuff like like of civilizations that have disappeared. Like meg- megalithic structures, I guess, is what the technical term would be for them. That's like uh, what they have at Teotihuacan or Chichen Itza. You know what Teotihuacan is? It's where the the pyramid of the sun and the moon for the Aztecs uh, was. Oh, yeah. yeah, I went there when uh, I went there a couple of times. Uh, I lived in Mexico for a couple of months because my dad got transferred down there um, when I was when I was very young, and uh, it's a day trip outside of Mexico City. And this temple of the sun is like it's. You can see pictures of it. It's kind of like when you see pictures of Mount Rainier. Mm. Yeah, it looks it looks massive. But when you're standing at the base of this fucking building, that they killed ninety thousand people on top of over a weekend, it's a completely different situation when you're walking up it. And the fucking stairs are narrow mm. because human beings were smaller. I had the same goddamn problem when I went to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going up these, I don't want to call them, like, they're not turrets, maybe minarets. I don't even know if that's used the right word. But you're going up these circular staircases to get to the top of the castle. There's a rope that'll be in the middle. And you better fucking hang on to this. And going up isn't a problem, but going down, like, I have a, I have a size 12 shoe. The stairs are for people that have size 5s and 6s. Mm-hmm. And it's wet. Well, could you imagine what that would be like with blood just coming down because they were cutting the hearts out of these people? Yeah. You know what I mean? I had to. I had to get the way to get down. And mind you, there were. There's no. They don't install rails. They might have now, but at the time there was no railing. You had to slide down on your butt. You had to sit down and scoot down this pier because the fucking angle is tremendous. Mm. Well, that's. Well, anyway, that's that's what she's what she's told what she's referring to when she called uh, megalithic structures like mm-hmm. Gobekli Tepe and stuff. And the idea is that him and Randall Carl, Carlson have put together is that. The, the reason why we had um, the, the, the abrupt end of the Ice Age is because of a com- there's geological evidence that a comet struck the ice cap mm-hmm. and melted everything so quickly. That's why you have, what is it, in the, in the west you have those, um, those steps or uh, what are they, they're like uh, the, t- the mesas, you know what I'm talking oh, yeah. about, they're, they were carved by, by fast running water, um, shit like that. Like that, that's, that's really interesting stuff, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's only so much you can put on a TV screen of that. You're going to miss, because somebody who's producing that goddamn TV show is going to say, Joe, you've got X amount of time. Now it comes your, your graduate school training where now you have to be really selective about what you put into your paper. Yeah. You can't just put everything that you fucking researched, right? Yeah. No. I want, you have, you have specifically this amount of space. Mm-hmm. A book doesn't have those constraints. Yeah. It doesn't have that problem. And I'm like you. I like to stop what I'm doing, and I will, I'll fucking take notes. I'll highlight. I'll write. A lot of my books are covered. Mm. Covered in notes, notations, earmarking it. Like, hey, check out this page. Writing, you know. 
Could you do that with a television show? Could you do that with with a documentary, DVD? Of course you could. Yeah. But referencing it first, you got to turn the fucking thing on. Then you got to find the disc. Then you got to put the disc in there. All I got to do is just open that book and start thumbing pages and be like, and especially if it's you know you know, got the dog ear, mm-hmm. you're like, oh okay, this must have meant something. Oh yeah, now I remember why I wrote that down. Mm-hmm. That's that's why I marked that page. You know what I mean? I think what's going to be interesting is if that were to happen and people were to survive. I think it would go back to um, I reference the book series Aragon with Bron, and Bron was the town storyteller. It's going to be those things where like people are going to be the town storyteller and they're going to say, okay, well, you know, this is what happened when I was six. We went here and this happened because you're not going to have anything to do. So, you know, it's like, okay, well, cool. And then they'll reference it back and forth. Um, That's why I think, um, I know I'm D&D nerd, but I think that's why D&D has become really popular again, not only because of Stranger Things and, you know, whatever. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, there's there's some nostalgia in it, and I think that was catapulted by Stranger Things. But I think the other thing too is that it is the the personal nature of it, where it's like, okay, you're sitting around the table again. You know, where yeah. I where I come from, um, you know, people. I my my situation was a little weird because um, what we had like a gate that my dad made, but a lot of people's driveways were just open, and then people would just like drive up and they'd be like, knock on the door. And they're like, hey, I'm here. Like, you want to sit and talk for a bit? They're like, yeah, come on in. And they just like sit and talk for like six or seven hours. Like, it, you know, I think with that, you know, there's this this personal nature of it too, where it's like, okay, we're we're coming together. I mean, you can do it online, but um, it's a lot more fun when you're in person. Like, you come together, you roll the dice, you see, like, obviously, you see the facial ex- expressions of everyone. They're like, oh, you know, like you got a bad roll, and then. Um, as a dungeon master, you kind of like rub your hands together and you're like, so as you walk in, you see this and this happens and everyone's like, and you just see it on their faces. There's like this human connection again, where I think um, a lot of technology has kind of like pushed us away. It's, it's like going back to that nature where people mm. are now having these interpersonal connections. They're hanging out regularly in person. Um, they're experiencing something together. They're building something together. And I think, um, I think that's what, what would happen in the event of some kind of catastrophe like that. I think once everyone was like, had their, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs met, if you remember that. Oh yeah. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to go back to you. It's like, okay, now we can build culture again. And I think that's, what's really cool. What I've seen playing with people in person is that they're really into building that kind of sense of community and like having that thing to look forward to, um, beyond the humdrum. And, um, that, I think that will that would be what would happen is that people, you know, they they do their daily tasking, they ready the crops and make sure that everyone's safe, and then they'll go to the town crier and just sit around the campfire and they'll hear the story. So, um, but yeah, I think I think it'd be interesting to see. I really hope that doesn't happen because that would be obviously catastrophic and rough. But I think it would be from a soci- sociological point of view, it'd be really interesting to see like what would happen post nature of it. Do you think that the decline, this is going to sound funny. I remember when I I grew up in the middle of the 1980s. I was born in 1980. Mm. So D&D was still a thing. It was waning by the time I got to be 9, 10, or 11. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nintendo had already been here for five or six years at that point. Atari since, what, late 78, 79 maybe? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Um, I had the 2600. I had the original Nintendo. I had all that shit, right? I had a couple of friends that were into it, but I also remember at the time... 
you may recall this, like there was a satanic scare. Yeah. Regarding Dungeons and Dragons. Bro, I listen to satanic music daily. I never knew I had anything to do with fucking D and D. None of my friends sacrificed anybody. There was no there was no black mass. Mm-hmm. None of that. What what the fuck was that all about? So from what I've heard and what I've read, there was basically a scare because this is gonna sound really weird, but this is how I took it. So essentially when you are playing the game, you're taking on another self. So for example, this is gonna you guys will probably laugh, but um <laughs> One of my characters that I have, I made sound like Steve Buscemi, just because I thought it would be really funny to have a <laughs> wizard. Like, so you see this weasened, crusty-looking, kind of bug-eyed guy walking. He's like, what are you doing? What's going on here? What's, oh, you look dirty. You're a freaking mess. Come on over here. I'm going to clean you. Like, there's something, you're like putting on this other self, essentially. And I think that in the, like, Judeo-Christian community, what happened was, is they were thinking, like, they're essentially i don't want to say like being possessed but that was the fears that they're like being possessed into this thing where they're creating another thing and another persona and that's like a spirit entering them and something and then it just kind of spawned from there and there was this kind of mass hysteria about it and i know there was some story and i can't pinpoint it so i'm paraphrasing but basically there was an individual who i think was either did like hallucinogens or something and then like kind of went off the deep end with it and it was like out in the woods like going on a quest and there was a huge uprising as far as like this is bad and we need to stigmatize it and it needs to go away but you know at the end of the day it's really just you're acting it's really just an act sure um i know there there are probably some people who take it really far and they like go out there and they'll like have something that they will um go after i don't even know but i think that's kind of where it came from so there's this disconnect and i in my one episode of my podcast, I was talking about it too. It's like, it's not, it's not, you're like having this other entity, like enter you. And now you're like, um, I don't know, Gildorn from Greyhawk. Who's a barbarian. That's going to go out and kill people. Like, you're not actually going to go out and kill somebody. Um, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, well I'm going to go on this quest, this high fantasy quest. Um, and you know, I think that's part of the reason too, why, uh, Harry Potter got such a big scare too is that they just didn't know the subject material. It's not like digging deeply and being like, okay, what is what is this actually about? I mean, if it's obviously committing mass harm, then yeah, it's probably bad. But at the same time, like, you know, there was a big scare with Harry Potter too when really it's like there's literally, I mean, yeah, there are derivatives from certain words, but it's not like they're literally saying they're like, we're going to find this child and sacrifice it and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's not like, even close. Not even close. I mean... You could argue because Voldemort was attacking a child, but no, it's like. But he was a clear antagonist. Yeah, it's like a clear antagonist. It's, it's having that. I don't want to say it's like almost having that disconnect. There's a moment too where it's like, if you're getting too into it, then it's kind of like okay, we need to, like, cut off here because I know there are times where I'll play, as like a character, and I'm a rogue and I'm like really I made him like really edgy, and there are points too where like I will kind of. There will be kind of a, a bleeding or like a porous wall as far as where I'm like, okay, something that was really rough this week happened and I just kind of happened to put it in the session where I was like, the character had more emotion, there was something that happened and it was bad for the character and they like, it, like just when I was acting it like came out a little bit more. 
that's where I, as a rational human being, have to be like, okay, I need to pull back like five or ten percent because sure. this is this is now becoming a thing where people are like, you're right there. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine. But it was just that moment where I'm like, I'm like, why won't you? And I was like acting, and I was like, why won't you do this? And they're like, you okay, bud? And it, it's knowing <laughs> the it's knowing the threshold where it's like, okay, where does this start becoming extreme? And I think where people got really freaked out about it was there was a singular case of it being extreme. And then there was just this mass panic of like, this is going to pollute our youth and this, that, and the other one. Like it's really just, they're making believe and right. building a story. I don't, um, I know one of the groups that I listened to a uh, critical role, they're deal, they're destigmatizing it because they're, um, they're going out into communities. They have, there's a charity it's called eight two six and it's throughout the country and it's, teaching creative writing to a bunch of like youth and they will use Dungeons and Dragons as like kind of the mode where they're like, okay, let's build your character. Like let's get creative. And then that'll cause them in turn to be creative. And then it's building a uh, community and destigmatizing it. And I think that's in, in days like right now where it's like, Oh, okay, well we were really, we're really against this, but really it's not that big of a deal. So no, yeah, that's it's kind of a, it was a weird like scenario, and then it just kind of went haywire. And I think now, um, especially with like, I think it's part of it with Stranger Things being as big as it is, and part of it being like pretty a list people that are like, hey, I play like Nathan Fillion, Felicia Day, Joe Mangelio, who is in True Blood. Um, actually, surprisingly, weirdly enough, John Heater. <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite fame. No kidding. Yeah, he he was actually on Critical Role. Um, there are various various people that play, and it's destigmatizing it. And I think the thing now that's again making it popular, like how I said, was that people are coming together because of it. And it's not like creating a little bit of nostalgia where they're like, "Oh, this is super cool," but it's connecting. And it's um, I know there's a lot of inclusivity with it too. Like the character can literally be anything you want. Um, so people are experiencing that and um they're they're growing closer because of it um it's like a, i don't i don't want to use the term like safe zone but it kind of is like a safe community because there really isn't too much stigma because you can literally be whatever you want so um i think i think that's where again i say and i stress that a lot of this stuff you know people need to first research it and maybe actually like look at the source material and see like, okay, this really isn't that bad before they jump to the conclusion of like, this is literally like a devilish thing where like people are coming together and they're like being possessed and they're doing all this other stuff. I it's yeah. Especially like this edition, it's like super straightforward. It's like, Hey, this is a game. Like, sure. So it's the same, you know, not for nothing, but the same people who would deride that, that gameplay that role playing, mm-hmm. that imaginative creativity that you have in D and D, be the same people who would glorify films depicting war and depicting sons being drafted to go off and fight for something that they had nothing to do with. The same people would totally be okay with their eight, nine, and ten year olds seeing this. And some people may argue that's a bit of an indoctrination to get them to say that their life is forfeit in the needs of the state. That's one way to look at it. Mm. The same people 
there's a there's a band that I'm a really big fan of and will remain nameless for the time being. Um, was on tour this past. Uh, in fact, they just wrapped up over in Europe, but they were in uh, in North America for several months. And I went to see them. Uh, prior to them showing up, they had a show in Texas, where a pastor showed up and said that uh, the band is a bad influence, that they're going to get kids to do terrible things because they're they're a satanic metal band or a satanic rock band. And uh, the lead singer of this band said, uh, you know, he was asked, well, this pastor says that you're bringing the devil to Texas. And the lead singer said, well, uh, the pastor's right. I am. But he said that he has to, he, he can't really have a conversation with anybody who takes that, that holy book, let's say, that seriously to the point where a rock concert is going to be the catalyst for the end of days. You know what I mean? Like, I went to the same show weeks later. I will tell you, there was no blood in the parking lot. There was no sacrifice on stage. In fact, nobody left the show that wasn't fucking smiling and had a good time. Sometimes I really think people are against other people having a good fucking time. It always feels like it's a sense of, of control. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, there's the, the kids are in the basement they're playing D&D and there's, there might be demons involved and all sorts of, you know, there's, there's wizards and all this other shit. It's a fucking game. Yeah. Just the same thing. They do, they do, the same group of people will deride video games. The same thing. I, I was playing, what is it, the Jedi, uh, what the hell is the name of oh, the game? Oh, the new one? The yeah, Fallen I got Order. it for, yeah, Fallen Order. I don't I own keep, the, I forget the name of that game I for, every time. It's the new Star Wars game. That's all we're going to call it. Yeah. Well, I don't have a lightsaber, not a real one. I have a battle-ready one over there in the corner, but I'm not going out into the street and trying to hack people and use the force and shit like that. You know, it's a video game. Same thing with Call of Duty. Never gone out into the street with an M4 and tried to light it up. It's a game. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the same, it's almost like a sense of losing control over people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back to your point, more to your point about the, 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 the coming together in the community... I've, I, we've recently talked about Turntable Tuesday. Both you and I have posted stuff on Instagram. Yes. Okay. You have a, a nice record collection, LPs. You have over 200 collect, correct? Yes. Okay. I'm not at that level. <laughs> I just got started. Well, that's, that's everybody has to start somewhere. You have the, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. In this case, a single LP. <laughs> but there's something to be said about this community. In, this, it's a, I, in a way, I feel like it's a greater nostalgia movement. Because LPs come for the end of them, so to speak, before they rose from the ashes recently. Because this past year, if I'm not mistaken, this past year was the first time since 1988 or 89 that record sales uh, eclipsed CD sales. You don't see CD racks anymore anywhere. Mm -mm. But there are plenty of record shops popping up selling LPs, including the fucking record exchange Yes. Which is which has a great selection of both new and used vinyl. That's a free fucking plug. With that being the case, that while digital music is wonderful, you have it on your phone. Like I have all my favorite stuff on my phone. I have a Bluetooth thing for my car I just installed. I can just I just sit in the car and it turns on automatically. But once again, that phrase fast food, mm-hmm. the fast food consumption of this particular medium of music versus when I was a kid. You'd sit down, mom and dad had this huge Fisher record player, you put the LP there, I'd open up the art, Yeah. I'd read the lyrics, you'd look at the art, 
you had to stop, like you said, you had to take your time. You need, like you said, you need quiet, right, mm. in order to read. But in this case, you needed time. You just didn't sit in a car or throw. You know, you could put your your headphones on. You plug them into the stereo with a huge jack or what have you. These massive headphones. You know what I'm talking about. I have, man. I have a good story about that, but I want you to finish your point. No, but my what I'm saying is, I think there's a greater movement. Not that, I mean, you could call it a nostalgic movement, but at the same time, I feel that there's a greater movement for some of these mediums that you have to stop and enjoy it. Mm. Like for example, if you you put on a record, let's say, and all. You can find where the song ends and the next song begins. Most I've tried several times to skip, and I end up getting a chunk of the end of the song, or I end up missing the beginning of the song. Yeah. Maybe because the fucking artist wanted me to listen to them in this particular sequence, and you should just sit down and listen to them in the sequence in which they are ordered. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not as easy as hitting a button to move to the next song or having a playlist. You know what I mean? And I'm not knocking it. I'm never going to get fucking rid of this goddamn thing. I'm always going to have it. Yeah. But to put a record on, you do have to sit down and take your time. Like, one of my favorite things to do is I play Age of Empires 3 on my computer downstairs. Mm. And ever since I got the record player, I'll throw an LP on there. I hit start. And I sit down, and it's in the background, and I play, and I enjoy the tunes, mm. and then I flip the record over. But yeah, that's I think that there's a greater movement now, mm-hmm. more so than there has been, to get back to these things. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, if you want, if we take a quick break, I will tell you the story after the break, if you can. Sure. Thanks. So, the story that I have was... Um, and it's a perfect example of that. I don't, I've not met a single human being that, I mean, there, I'm sure they're out there. Um, whether it was CD or LP, you have to listen to Dark Side of the Moon all the way, all the way through. Like, I've never met a single human being that's like, yeah, listen to us and them. And maybe Great Gig of the Sky. It's like, what are you, what? Like, you got to start with the very beginning and then you have to listen to the thing the whole way through. Like, I have a memory of when I was like 14 and I, was just starting to get into Pink Floyd. And my dad, as you were saying, had the big headphones from the 80s. He's like, here you go. And then he took it and he plugged it in. And I'd like, there was a movie. It's um, Wizard of Oz. It's Wizard of Oz. But then how they like sync up. But the movie that it reminds me of is, um, there's a, uh, God, what was it? I want to say Train Spotting, which is a weird reference to all this. But like, where it's like all kind of existential like if you lay back with the headphones on and you close your eyes and you just listen like and you hear all the weird stuff like the clocks and the chimes and then like how it pans from one ear to the other and then back and all the weird stuff and then it um cuts into the i forget the name of the track but it's where david gilmore's like take it away and it's like you're just like oh that was an amazing like experience i i know that feel where you just like it can it's weird how you like put it in the background and you think, Oh, it's just no big deal. You know, whatever. And you keep walking around, but then there's like something that forces you to sit and take the time. Um, I know that Jack white who's a really big advocate for vinyl. Um, part of the raconteurs and white stripes, um, and his own solo work. He said, he's like, here's how the future is going to go. He's like, you're going to have your streaming service for your car. Then you're going to have your LPs at home. And I'm like, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, I found that too, a lot where, I can't even think how long it's been since I've touched a CD. Yeah, it's I, been a while. Yeah, but I the just like the the physical excitement I got for for Christmas when my dad was like, "Open this up," and it, it was the square package. I'm like, "Okay, I know what it is," but 
just cutting through it and realized it was like CCR because I love CCR <laughs> and I'm like Chronicle and he's like one of the best and like I, you know you open it and it's obviously got the sprawl of the the inner artwork and then what was really interesting was I pulled out a poster there was a poster hidden in there too and it looks like the one from um, I forget the name of the album but it's the one where it looks almost kind of like psychedelic and mystical I think was it Green River I forget the name of the album but anyway it's like the same style of artwork and I'm like wow I I would have never been able to hang that up with a CD booklet like I remember when Green Day's 21st Century Breakdown came out and there was like a little I mean it was maybe this big of a poster but then like in the CCR one when I opened it I mean it's a pretty big it was like 22 inch by 22 inch poster it's a pretty decent poster and I'm like that's pretty cool oh yeah or I think it might have even been Dark Side of the Moon had a poster in it too if I remember correctly but it's just something about and then there's the smell of it too like oh, yeah. when you go into the exchange and like you get at the back and just like it's just that that smell and you're like I need to have it all <laughs> um, but my favorite thing now when I go in is I'm like what is the absolute most weird thing that I can find it's not even it's not even like the ones that I like anymore I'm like what is when I'm in here what is the most absolute weirdest thing that I can find and one day I found a Mr. Rogers album that I'm like it's only a dollar and they're like it's really only a dollar and I'm like you can take five <laughs> so I like go home and I listen to it and it sounded like that point in um, Insidious when there's like the um, Tiny Tim playing in the background mm-hmm. but I was alone You're in my house toe through the tulips yeah. yeah well I was in my house alone and I put that on and you know I'm walking around I'm doing chores and I just hear there's a special kind of place for me and you and I'm like I walked over <laughs> it was like thump, 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 and I just like put, I hit stop and I just saw the needle going I'm like Okay, I'm not dying today. <laughs> I was so thankful. And I was like, okay, that was a little too weird. I want to find a Bob Ross one, but I don't think it'll ever. I want a Bob Ross LP, just because I think that'd be really awesome. Did you research and see if it, it does exist or I'm out not there? Yet. Or not? No, I'm not yet. I need to. I need to research it because that would be the coolest. I think that'd be one of the coolest things ever. Like, it's also really cool. I think they're like staples of history too, because when I graduated undergrad. Um, a friend of mine, she was like, I know how much you like LPs and I found this for you. I hope you have the ability to play it. And it was a 45 of Kennedy's inauguratorial speech. That's and a pretty good find. I know. I was like, this That's is actually, a pretty good find. Yeah. I'm like, this is actually really cool. Or like, um, some places, you know, there are things you cannot find. Like, uh, when I, they were tearing down the old, uh, uh, news radio station at my old job and there was a vinyl sale going on cause they had all these LPs. Well, they didn't expect all these kids to come run, like literally running when it opened. Like they were like, we, we have to find uh, what we what we can. And I will forever kick myself because I was holding a copy of Space Jam. I had the Space Jam single, the 12 inch single. And I really, it, I put it down because I was doing a walkthrough. I'm like, oh, I wonder what this is about. You know, and I, I picked it up and I'm like, it'll be here. You know, I'll put it, hide it and then I'll come and pay for it later. And I lost it. So that was my one, like, the oh, fifth I got. I was so mad. I was like, oh, I love Space Jam. But I got a really cool, even though the song really annoys me now, it was an REM 12-inch single, uh, like a DJ-only promo of Shiny Happy People. Okay. And it was, yeah, but it had, like, a weird mix on the other side. And I'm like, okay, this is still pretty cool. But I'm like, why, why is this a thing? But I'm, I will forever kick myself. But that's the thing is, like, 
sometimes you find things that you can't, you still can't even find on Spotify or iTunes. Um, the one, another key example of this is like, um, some Frank Zappa records. I really like Frank Zappa and like some of them you just cannot find. I mean, yeah, they put a majority of them up there, but like there are certain compilations that I'll have like hidden songs that you're like, Oh, I didn't even know. Like there's no way I could get this. Um, certain because i'm a really big fan of the white stripes um jack white has like a little vinyl club where he'll put out like for example one of the recent ones was a uh a companion album to their the white stripes first album and it has uh all these rarities and b-sides that i've never even heard of before like names like x kid and johnny where'd you go or like all these other weird ones that i'm like i would have never known this existed if i didn't have the vinyl club um and he does weird stuff too like he'll put he had this one LP, it was called the Triple Decker Record, where it's one one side pressed, one side pressed, and then you had a choice. You could either cut along the seam, break the vinyl in half, and there's a hidden six seven inch single on the inside that contained unreleased songs, or you could leave it together just forever. And so like fans are like, Oh man, what do I do? And the one that I really loved is and this is something like again you can't really do on digital format. I got this their new LP for one of his bands take the LP and I'm like looking at it and there's this weird kind of like reflect it's not really reflective it's like the shimmery kind of photo where it's like you kind of tilt it and it like changes picture mm-hmm. so I'm looking at it and then I realize there's a little cut along the back of it and I'm like that seems really interesting and I went into the cut and I kind of like moved it and I realized there was another picture behind it so I'm slowly like taking my hand and kind of like going through kind of seesawing all the way through and I slowly pull off this reflective thing and then what i find on the actual cover of the album is the they recreated the beatles butcher block album cover but instead of the beatles faces it's their faces how interesting so i was like i would have never been able to have that if it wasn't for you know this format and i think it's really i think again as we've been talking about there's been a novelty to it where you know it's taking the time going out and getting these records and you know sorting through them all or like finding something interesting like um one of my favorite bands now called goldfinger i would have never found goldfinger if it wasn't for going to this coffee shop and they had a record store attached up top and i went into the loft and there's this the goldfinger album cover is these like two skeletons in a graveyard and one of them's like got a knife behind their back and they're about ready to stab the other skeleton and the album is called the knife i never would have found that out if i hadn't you know, had this weird obsession with going, going out, going to the stores and like looking through to find the records. It's, I, and I think another part of it too, is that there's, there's an ownership to it. And I think that's why when we were talking about books, why I think they'll outlast TV. Cause it's, yeah, you can own the, you can own it on DVD, but there's something about it being yours. Like it's your copy. Um, my dad, you know, writes like little, as we were talking about, writes little notes, but with certain books that he bought me, he like wrote, he wrote like, happy 16th birthday or whatever. And I'll always have that copy. And it's something about that. It's something about the possession of it. Um, same thing with the vinyl. It's like, you know, you're going out, you're, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's like picking a pumpkin on Halloween. It's like, you're going, you're like, well, this one's kind of cool, but not with that one. This one's kind of cool. And it's like, you take possession and ownership of it and it means something more. Um, and I found that out too. I actually had, um, an iPod classic that had all my songs from when I was, um, like 14 and I was like I, I said it out loud I was like wow what a relic and then I was like no idiot it was only like 
so many years ago, but then like I started playing it and it just like brought back the memories and like it brought back a place and a time. And I think that's part of the thing about vinyl because I know you were talking about. I know one time when we were talking, we were talking about Metallica. You were talking about how you loved that record, and it was like it brought you back to a place. And I think yep. that's these conversation pieces, but also it's like sharing the experience. Because I remember when I was a kid, um, the one of the early, the first memory I had of a record was um, I love the Beatles. So my dad had the White Album out, and then he had this other one tucked away, and I'm like, "What's that?" And he pulls it out, and it's Bob Dylan's "Blood on the Tracks." I didn't know anything about Bob Dylan when I was 12. And he goes, oh, yeah, this is Bob Dylan. He's pretty good. And I'm like, I don't know anything about it. He's like, he sings really nasally. And he's like, here. And he had a portable one, kind of like the, how the Crosleys are now. And he set it up on the kitchen table, and he put it on, and he put the needle on. And um, he only played Tangle Up in Blue. And he's like, and that's the only that's the only song I ever played on this record. And I'm like, what? I'm like, why? And he's like, I don't know. It's just because. And he, like, tucked it away. And then um, it was just that that moment where it's, and I, I also love this part too. It's it's easy to like click on a song and it just like automatically starts. But there's something magical about hearing the needle hit the groove and that, that pop and that fizz. Oh yeah. It's like it's like that um, that audiovisual response when you open like a soda and you see that pop and you hear the fizz. It's like that with a record um, where oh, that's fair. it yep. hits in the groove and then you're just like you're like anticipating. Like there have been so many albums recently where I could have listened to the first seminal tracks from the band. And I was like, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And then I, it's that satisfying moment of like, I hit the needle, hit the groove. And I'm like, this is what I was waiting for. This is perfect. Yep. So, yeah. I don't think I could have summed it up better than that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. The pop and the fizz, man. You hear that, 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 that crunchiness to, uh, when the needle hits the vinyl first. And, uh, you know, I have, you brought up Metallica. I have several, of the albums that have been remastered digitally, mm-hmm. I can't really tell the difference between the original CD mm-hmm. and the digital remaster. Mm-hmm. However, the remastered vinyl versus the digital remaster are two different things. Mm-hmm. And I mean two... There's I don't want to use the word warm, but there's a fullness to the sound. And I, I looked it up, and if I'm not mistaken between analog and digital something is lost along the way to that conversion Mm -hmm. and when you have it on vinyl you're getting the full sound now does it help if you know i have a nice sony uh player i've got a nice um receiver i've got great speakers that have good bass all of those things contribute to a fullness of sound Mm -hmm. but at the same time i think vinyl delivers on another level Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm. That that, that it, when when it says remastered, it really it fucking sounds night and day different. You know what I mean? Mm. Almost uh, maybe a little bit faster. Um, when you play your forty fives, do you prefer the elevated adapter or do you prefer the flat adapters? See, that's just, that's interesting. I personally, I don't really have a preference, but I have this really cool elevated one that I that I got from the record subscription. They're like, okay, that's pretty cool. And I, I use that one a lot, but I really think, I, I don't know. I'll have to do that. I'll have to try and experiment. I, I think I personally prefer like the thick, prefer the thicker ones just because I found like with the, the flat ones, they kind of like shake a little bit. So I get a little leery of like them scratching. Um, but I think, I think I prefer the elevated ones personally. What about you? 
I prefer the flat mm-hmm. because I felt like when I, I have a, I got one for a dollar ninety nine mm-hmm. at the record store, and I put my uh, my forty five on there, and it almost sounded warped, yeah. Because maybe the the hand for the needle is a little heavy, yeah. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then I played it with the flat adapter where it goes flat onto the turntable. And it sounds a little bit different. That was just curious to see. Now, maybe I have a cheap piece of shit, $1.99, and that's what you get when you pay $1.99. I mean, I don't know. I, what did they, what did we make uh, adapters out of in the past? I mean, shit, there were 45 players. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I think... It was really, it just came with the record player. It was like a little, because I know with mine, there came like just a little piece of elevator raised plastic. So I really, okay. I think it's, I think it's one of those things where it's just like a matter of preference. Um, I know, see, I had flat ones in the past too. And the other thing I will say about the flat ones that I kind of haven't found with the, um, with like the thicker ones is that I think depending on, it could even be depending on the pressing too, is that you might need the, the thinner one just because it fills it out more. Okay. But I see that's where it kind of contradicts what I said because I think I think the fatter ones fill it up more, but there are some I found that you need the skinny one to kind of fill out the rest of the record, which is kind of weird, but it really I think it really just depends. So Fair enough. Yeah. Excellent. Do you have any record stories that you want to share with us? I have no record stories, no. No, just CD stories, tape deck stories. See, uh, I have a lot. Of, both. I have a lot of tape deck stories. Yeah, tape deck. Yeah, tape deck. I still, I'm still part of the generation that had tape deck. I listened to tape decks a lot. Um, did I, you ever have one in an automobile that you owned? Yes. See, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> I think the favorite, my favorite thing to do is I actually made mixtapes. So when people are like, "Oh, you know, mixtape," I'm like, "No, I actually had, I made mixtapes." Oh yeah, 100. So, yeah, and then you would, I, I would still do things where. I think even when I was like ten, I would play a radio station and I would I would have it and I would just hit record and I'd make the mixtape. And but you still get like I wasn't as skilled, so you get like the little snippets of the end. It's like this is K, and I'm like I'd stop it there. I'm like crap. So then you yep. you play the end of whatever song was. It's like this is K. I'm like crap. So I had to <laughs> cut that. Um, my grandpa used to make me mixtapes too, and he he was from the era of like true forty fives where they were rare like long playing ones were rare and you could get 45s of the hot songs and um he would make me mixtapes and it was called oldies for for joseph and then underneath then i'd get a new one and it'd be it'd be more oldies for joseph so when i was watching guardians of the galaxy and finn has or not finn wow um peter Kroll has his like mixtape of awesome mix i'm like i can relate to that that's funny and a lot of people are like oh i don't get it i'm like it's it's a thing like you just have to trust the process but yeah my grandpa would make all these mixtapes and actually i begged my mom <laughs> to use i would take i took it to school when i was a kid actually in uh like 2006 in elementary school i actually had her walkman and the the really like i don't want to say chintzy but like they were the like yellow foam oh yeah headphones. i took that to school and that's what i listened i had to. that while people were like listening on their cd players like, look at my cd player i'm like i don't care nope yeah 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 and then carrying a cd book was a real bitch you know <laughs> mm-hmm. what i mean because you yeah. could you couldn't make a mixed cd at the time i had like a fucking 486 computer at home with an external cd uh, rom drive so you still like you know if i wanted to do all my favorite metallica man i throw the cd in there 
I fucking hit play, I hit play and record, record that song, toss that fucker out, put the next one in, and I'd have, you know, and if you got, if you got those, oh, the, the Maxell, what was it, 120 minutes a side? Yeah. That you could really get a good chunk of music. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the fuck, and dude, you go over a bump in a goddamn school bus oh. with a fucking CD player from 1993, and bitch, you're going to skip three songs. Well, when... You know, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so that's what I did, too, is, you know, there were moments where, like, I'd be, you know, I'd be listening to, this kind of dates me, I listened to Oasis, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, man, yeah, and then I was just, thump, like that, and then right in the middle of Champagne Supernova, all that beautiful guitar, would be like, boom, and then you would go and listen to it the next day, and it was just like, dee, 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 like, there would be that infamous skip, and you're like, oh, no. You know, I just got the vinyl, the re-release of uh, what's the story, Morning Glory? Yeah, and it's I think four song. It's four LPs, like this this really thick vinyl, mm-hmm. and it's four songs per side. Like I'll have to I'll have to take some pictures of it and send it to you. So yeah, you could take a look. But yeah, that was that was something I was really glad I found at the at the record shop. I was was really happy with that find. It's it's the find too. Like it's so easy, you know, to look up anything you want on the internet. But it's something about like, okay, I'm gonna go in today and I'm gonna like find something cool. And then, for example, I had this problem too because I on uh, Black Friday I was like, oh, I'm gonna look, go look because I was had a really big Nirvana kick. I was like, I'm gonna go see if they have Bleach. And I did, and I found like several copies of Bleach, and I was like, I was like, this is this is great, you know. It's yeah. like having that moment where it's the kind of eureka moment where you're literally parting the stacks, and then you find like some beaten, looked like really worn and listened to copy of Bleach, and there's something about it as you're listening to like school, and you're hearing Kurt just like shred his voice, and that's where we were talking about that too. There's like a compression element too, like where it when you're doing digital like because i'm there's a band i really liked when i was in high school called a uh, vampire weekend and they had this album that was called uh modern vampires of the city and it was when i listened to it first on the record i was like this is different and then i listened to it when it was all compressed and i was like okay now this makes sense because they were going for the compressed version but their label was kind of forcing them to put it out on vinyl and it seemed like there were, I don't want to say there were like pockets, but it seemed like there were kind of pockets in the record mm-hmm. where it was like, why does this sound so more like open? And it was that compression factor because the album originally was mastered for iTunes. And when it was not mastered for iTunes and like they decompressed it, you could tell it was like different. But when I listened to it more and more as I got older, it sounded so much better. I realized where it had like the ability to swell instead of like, because there are certain things on the uh, on the uh, digital process where you can like limit the threshold as far as like what kind of sounds are made and like they can go in and like cut and remove some of the songs and that's where I found albums like um, Queen that Queen made really fascinating because you know Freddie has to be on point. There's no way they can go in really and like limit how like the cracks in his voice like how high you can go like he had to be like on point whenever he recorded sure um especially those analog tapes that they would take and then put to the record um so which is kind of not to like frown upon people um doing it digitally nowadays but it's you know there's a lot you can do like in studio to to modify it um my cousin actually does stuff like that and he was showing me how 
with stuff that I've recorded, he's like, okay, I'm going to set this limiter here so that it all can't go above this certain point. Like this is the highest or like loudest point. And it can't go above that. And I'm like, man, I just realized that, you know, cause, um, in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, they would take their amps and like hang them from the ceiling, and, like swing them to get the effects. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. So you're having this moment where it's like, okay, they, they had to do it. They had to work, you know? And now it's like, it seems like in studio nowadays, it's like cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, and you're good sure. to go. Um, for certain, for certain albums and bands, I think, or, artists so i think it's really fascinating now that we live in this age where we have the luxury of you know having the digital quality and you know having everything like easily accessible but you're seeing this rise in recurgence of this medium where it's like okay now i have to actively go and pursue it i think that's really really interesting too and i think it's interesting for the younger generation because um Harry Styles, who's in One Direction, I was reading this today, for the past week and with Christmas and stuff, had the biggest selling vinyl, or like one of the biggest weeks of vinyl in 2019. I forget how many units. It was like tens of thousands. That's pretty good. It was pretty good for that medium. So I think it's really interesting to see the younger generations even going after it too. And I, I wish I knew a better, or had a better explanation as to why, but I just think it's really fascinating. So, yeah, as do I. And every time I go to the record store when I'm, you know, cutting through the stacks and my specific uh, uh, genre that I'm pursuing, uh, it's never older people. It's people either my age or younger mm-hmm. that are going through mm-hmm. the stacks to take it to, to get a slice of whatever they're looking for. And I think that that's, you know, more to your point, I think that there is a part like, you know, with. Yeah, can you credit some of these shows that take place, you know, like, for example, when I was a little boy, like Stranger Things, for example, I grew up in the same era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I think you can credit that. You can credit that. Like, if we see a rise, like, I think before even that show came out, there's already been, I'm not sure if it's in Lakewood, uh, there's an arcade, an actual arcade that you can go in and play, you know, arcade video games. You mm-hmm. put the quarter in, you play Pac-Man or Contra or whatever the hell it is that you're doing. You know what I mean? Not, not a Dave and Buster's, but an actual video arcade that was what we had, mm. you know, at some of the larger malls in the area. You know what I mean? You could spend an entire day in there. Mm. I think that there is a longing for that, once again, that communal getting together, like, you know, I'm playing fucking Street Fighter. Like, I remember uh, going to the mall and giving somebody else quarters to show me how to fucking play Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. Like, I keep getting my fucking ass kicked. I'm like, here's money. Could you show me? And he's like, yeah, sure, kid. I can show you. And he would show He was like, no, no, no. You're not. This is this is how you need to do it. And you're pressing the buttons the wrong way. And you got the joystick is over. You know what I mean? And he's working all this stuff at the same time. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I kind of apprenticed for, you know, two or three dollars. And then all of a sudden I got better. I could use Sub-Zero a lot more effectively. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But there's, um, there, that's missing. I don't, I don't know, man. Like, maybe the kids do that when they go over to the friends' houses and they get their Xbox or PlayStation and everybody's doing that. But it's a lot different when you go to the mall. It's far more social. You're removed from the home environment. You're out in public. You know what I mean? You can sit down and get a snack someplace and shoot the bullshit and hang out and then go back to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. There is. I, I do think that a lot of these, the cult, the popular culture that we've been consuming has definitely aided in pushing it forward. 
But at the same time, I think that people have been longing for getting back to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think in the digital age, when everything is invisible and in one location, you know, like your phone, it has everything there. And it's like you referenced the fast food. But it's not... People want something that they can hold on to. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much emptiness that you can have. Sure. And I think that that's where it comes from. That's why there will always be books. Because when you're reading the book, you have the thought process in your head of what the author is describing. Somebody else can put that on screen, but it's not the same vision of what you had of that monster or that field or that castle yeah. You created it in your head mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody else's vision. And that's why books and things like that will always be available no matter what version. I think that's a very good point. Um, let's just hope that the trend continues. So when you finish this book, getting back, come full circle, nice. when, when you finish this book, how do you plan to publish? Because I work with an individual who's going to try to work with me regarding my dog. We're going to make a comic strip about my dog, the anarchist dog, because as anybody knows, all huskies are anarchists unless you get them into a pack and pull a fucking sled. Outside of that, they do whatever they want, yeah. however they want to. I just happen to have got a really good one who's not, a, who's not an asshole, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to do a, a comic and, you know, was talking about the development of the character and stuff like that. He's published his work. He did a kid's book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once again, it's about a dog. Um, and he got it published through Amazon. I mean, he's a, and he is a great artist, mm-hmm. a tremendous artist. Um, I, I'm, how do you plan to publish your work? Are you, how, how are you going to go about this? Uh, I think part of what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out to basically where my heroes went so obviously like simon and schuster and like harper collins like all those um and then maybe like put out you know a chapter or two of it um i know the intro the intro for me is like one of the staples because it's just this kind of culmination of me as a writer and i think i'm gonna put that at the forefront be like hey i wanted to pitch this to you what do you think um i think at the end of the day if it came down to it i would probably go to amazon because i don't know the process um and but I think I think I'm gonna do it the old fashioned way. I'm gonna just pitch it out to people and be like, here, I'm gonna send you this manuscript, see what you think. Um, but I need people to read it first. Cause I don't want I'm kinda of the kind of person that's like, I don't wanna put something out there, um, and then people like and I like to get feedback. I like to see what people think and um I wanna make sure that it's good to go before I even present it sure. to somebody who my my heroes went to because I want to put out the best product possible. Kind of like how the kind of like us in school, like we, we ping pong off each other. Like, please tell me this is good. And then it's like, okay, like go yep. for it. So I think that's how I'm going to do it. But I would really like to ask you to ask your friend how that worked out because I would, I would be interested in maybe self publishing if I could. I mean, if you could do it yourself, I think that's always the best option. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that would be, but 
I appreciate you wanting to go through Simon & Schuster and HarperCollins because the traditional route. And I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if you're able to, to do that, well, then Mazel Tov to you. That yeah. worked out for you. Are you uh, editing as you write? Yes uh, and no. Oh, no. Because I... Oh, no. Because <laughs> I can't, like, when I... Because of how busy I am with different things, like, I have to... If, like, I have a note actually in my phone. So that's like, you need to go back to 1.3 and you need to do this. And it's like driving me absolutely bonkers. Like, I hate that it's sitting there in my to do list. So I have to do it as I go because then, because what I do is I'll, I'll write a chapter and then I'll dump it into a bigger document on Google Drive. And then I'll go back through and I'll look to see how it flows. So I need it all to flow to be able to put it in the next chapter. So I do edit as I go. Now, there's a lot more detail that I need to add, and there's definitely a lot of grammatical mistakes that I need to go back through. Um, but shamefully, and I know that the the patron saints of writing would slap me on the wrist for doing so, but I definitely edit as I go. Fair enough. You got a little bit of anarchist in you, just a little bit. You're kind of doing what you want on that one, and good for you. But don't most people kind of do that as you you edit as you go because maybe you you know are typing something and then you're looking for or a better word comes into your head or a better phrase comes into your head and you like delete it and then write that. Right. So think, isn't that kind yeah. of editing? As I you think go? you're so supposed nice. to make notes and then go back and, and first you're supposed to finish. Otherwise the idea from what I understand, what I've gleaned from other published authors is that they complete their work. You, whatever three pages a day, three pages and out and some people can type Matt you know, they, they have so much shit in their brain that they can throw right down on paper or on the word processor and get a lot of work done at one time but as you edit if you edit as you go remember a lot of these people get a book deal they're given x amount of time yeah so the idea is to finish as fast as possible mm-hmm. then go back once the product is finished and edit at that point because if you edit as you go your window and I, I don't know if it's I've never read a book that seems like it was rushed at the end but I'm sure that it's happened where people are like look you, you we have a published date this is when you need to be done and you know somebody's rushed through that as opposed to just you know plowing through it and then going back and making the notations and making the corrections and of course any editor worth their salt is going to find grammatical errors and fix them for the author you know what I mean? That wouldn't be so much on the author as much as it would be whoever your editor was to go through that, mm-hmm. because that's who's that 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 pat once it passes through the editor, that means it's it's ready for print. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the last stop, and you know, and it's to be a, just because you make grammatical errors in your writing doesn't make you a bad writer. You know what I mean? And that's what an editor is there for. An editor is there to catch those things that let your creative mind flow, so to speak. And let the people who are the fucking grammar Nazis uh, go through your work and, and, and Y-O-U-R instead of Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. I think that's the concept behind it. To keep the flow of ideas mm-hmm. moving. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you... I think it's all individual. It's however you approach it. And, you feel, and you're not under a time constraint. The constraints are either self-imposed or they don't exist. Yeah. You're doing this for pleasure. You're doing this because you want to do it. Mm. You know what I mean? As opposed to somebody who gave you an advance and said, okay, Brosef, here's your money, and we need it done by date X. Mm. Now it's a different story. Yeah. There's money behind it. But right now you're doing it just because... You, 
I want you to tell me what you told. Uh, tell me again what you said about wanting to be a writer and what it would mean to you as far as the Wikipedia link. Oh my God! I for, see. I knew this was going to come up because I know when I meet new people, I like to say this, and they're like, "What? It doesn't make sense." So when I was a kid, I would watch, like, and on TV, I would watch um, people like Stephen King. I'd watch. Green Day, I watched all these other people that I looked up to and they would appear on The Late Show and, you know, they'd be they would say, my next guest is blah 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 and then they would come out and they'd like do their thing and he'd be like, he'd be like tap and he'd be like so I see you're putting out this new product, uh, it's called blah 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 tell me about it and what it, and they're like yeah, so this is me and this is what I do I've always wanted to create a Wikipedia page for my life to have like a legacy and I've always, and like for example, my music, podcast, even if like the book doesn't take off or whatever, like I want something that was like, hey, I, I had time that I I had time and I've like put used to it. Um, I would love to have that Wikipedia page where people are like, oh, I I want to look at that guy. Like I want to see what that guy did. I want to see like what makes him tick. Like what are things that like contribute to his story or like what what is something that um, stands out and you know like I like I said I grew up in this like really middle of nowhere place kind of like Courage the Cowardly Dog where it's like I, obviously they had desert but it's like cornfield right, sure. and there's like what was going to happen here um, I want I want to I basically want to be the person for that same kid that lived in the middle of nowhere that was like I want to do something to show that you know, you can, I guess, not only be recognized on the international or the international and national stage, but I guess show somebody that they can do it too. Like sure. be the next, I don't want to say be the next king because that's kind of ambitious, but like be the next person on that talk show for somebody to be like, oh, well, I grew up, you know, in the situation X or I want to be a representative for my population and I want to craft this thing. Because, you know, eventually somebody has to be the next one. Like, somebody oh, yeah. has to take up the mantle. And I think if... I, I've always had this mentality, too. It's like, why not me? Like, why couldn't I make a Wikipedia? Sure. Like, have a Wikipedia page of things that I've done. So, um, something has to something has to kick off. And if not, then as the Jeff Bridges book goes, I have to be content with here and what I'm doing. So I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. A great <laughs> way to close it out. Um, <laughs> Do you have anything uh, there, Angel, that you would like to uh, to add before we uh, disperse? No. Okay. Uh, what's your Instagram handle or any of your social media for people to find you? Um, the Instagram is private. Facebook is private. But um, I know you can. So for um, my music, it's uh, Joe Byers Music. For um, my podcast, one of my podcasts, um, Graymore, which is the title of the book, it's... Um, on Twitter at GrayMoreCast. Um, you can find it on major um, podcasting sites, <clears throat> Apple, Spotify, Google Play, all those. Um, for my uh, specific podcast that I update pretty frequently, it's Third Shift Thoughts with Joe Fizz, because Joe Fizz was my nickname as a kid in my family. Um, that's um, on YouTube as well. Um, I think that's it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to kind of you come back yeah. when you uh, get close to finishing or when you do finish the uh, the book. 
and uh, talk more about that. But this has been a real deep conversation. We've gone, we went for a couple of hours. I think it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, time flies when you're having a good time. I can't thank you enough for coming down here and hanging out and chatting with us uh, wow. about some uh, really, really good stuff. And uh, it's appreciated. And I look forward to uh, getting that autographed copy when you're finally finished. So, well, but thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, we'll definitely get to finishing that book eventually. So I know comps are coming up. So <laughs> yeah, that's gonna have to take a backseat for the comps. You want to yeah. be one and done with that fucking shit. Yeah, you know what I mean. Don't take it twice. So, <laughs> but uh, thank you again. And uh, for my uh, anarchist friends on uh, Twitter, especially Sal Mayweather, uh, thanks for the inspiration and the support. And um, I'll have this up here as soon as possible. So thank you again, Joe. Appreciate your time. And uh, that's it for now. Thank you. Cool.